Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is The Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode, and today I'm pleased to meet Anu Ota, somebody who has an extensive experience of East Africa and Kenya in particular, who has written a book that touched my heart because has written about two of the themes that I really like, and they are part of this also, this journey, this our sustainability journey, that is conservation and regeneration of ecosystem. Very pleased to have today Peter Martel. Thank you so much, Peter, for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Peter, you have written this wonderful book, Flowers for Elephant. And it's a book that touched me and really showed a story on how we can have communities and conservation together to really give a regeneration of an environment, of an ecosystem. Before going there, I want to ask, who is Peter? What is your sustainability journey? Um, well, thank you for having me on here. Um, I'm a journalist, is, is what I do in my day job. Um, I work for, I used to work for the, the BBC and I used to, and I currently work for the French news agency, AFP. Um, and I'm British, but uh, I spent um, nearly getting on for two decades in, in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa. I grew up, however, you know, on a farm in Northern England. So, you know, my, I'm rooted very much in a sort of rural community, but over the years, you know, working as a foreign correspondent, I was based in Eritrea, in Yemen, in Sudan, and then in South Sudan in, in the run-up to independence. And um, then moved to Kenya and came to tell the story of uh, the Northern Raisins Trust in Northern Kenya because of, uh, you know, things that I'd seen along the way of, although as a journalist, you sort of focus on the day-to-day, by and large, political happenings you know what the president said what happened in the accident who died in which battle but there was a bigger theme that I felt and that I saw which was a sort of sense of um, growing impacts of climate change of conflict exacerbated by climate change of um, people struggling to survive in their environments that they'd done so for millennia and now the situation was changing through you know threats to resources and i'd seen that in south sudan for example with with giant um cattle raids involving hundreds of people killed and i'd seen it in somalia where the creation of charcoal was devastating forests and creating climate change there and um, drought and famine it's something that i felt was a much bigger picture and all i was doing as a journalist was telling the day-to-day story, what happened today, and not that bigger sense of the threats that face us all, that especially these regions that are dry lands that are really on the edge, that are, are being the hardest hit as the, as the planet changes. So that's a little bit of where I, I'm coming from. That is very interesting. I'm really happy. And I would say also, it's a positive story, which I think also we are used in the press to get the famine, the disaster, the problem. But I think also it's a, a book that also opened our heart on how to see that it's not just problems, but there's also there are solutions. And I want to dig a bit deeper before going now to the book and, and the work, the wonderful book of NRP that we have discussed. You see, you have extensively worked in the region. 
How have you seen the region and the conservation of this fragile ecosystem? You know, the answer to that question could be told in two ways. One, that threats facing wildlife populations, biodiversity, the environment are enormous. And, and I think, you know, and rightly so, some people will say, you know, that, you know, that the future is bleak. But at the same time, I think the other way one can answer that question is to look at the things that the work and the, op- and the efforts that people are making to really try to mitigate those impacts and to make change. And there are some really positive efforts going on and real change being made. So on one hand, yeah, you know, the sustainability, environmental impacts in, in northern Kenya and in the wider region are, are enormous, but things can be done and change can be made. And this is exactly what your book is telling about. It's telling about the story of the Northern Rangeland Trust. You start with these two guys, Ian and Kinyanjui. I mean, a couple that, it's also an odd couple that started this journey. Can you tell more about that? Northern Rangeland Trust, for those who, who don't know, it's a sort of patchwork, a, a network of community conservancies, uh, mainly across northern Kenya, but also on the coast of Kenya, that now covers an area about roughly adding up to about a tenth of the size of the entire country, which isn't far off the size of all the national parks and reserves put together. So it's a huge area. And it's an incredibly complex organization involving different languages, different ethnic groups, different communities, different geographic areas. But the story that I wanted to tell was not so much about all the bureaucratic organization, but how it began and and how that inspired me to tell this story. And and that, as you said, started with these essentially two friends, Ian Craig, who um, grew up on a, uh, you know, he's a a British extraction, uh, grew up on a, what was then a cattle ranch called Lewa, just south of Isiolo and uh, north of Nanuki. And he was a guy that loved just exploring the wildlife as a young kid. And, and his dad was so scared because as a teenager, as of age 13, 14, he would just disappear out the window to go and roam around the bush that he would be uh, munched up by a lion. So his dad found a young cattle herder called Kinyan Dewey, who comes from Ilinguezi, of a, a, Maasai, a Maasai group. And, um, asked him just a few years older than Ian, and said you know could you look after this guy to make sure that when he goes off roaming that there's someone to look after him and so what began as essentially a teenage friendship has been a friendship that stayed through their lives and I think each of them allowed the other to somehow step into their lives gave them a window or a doorway into the perspective through a, a, a mutual friendship but allowed each other to see the perspective of the other and that would help Ian, when he decided to turn uh, with the rest of his family to turn labor, which was then a struggling cattle ranch, as I said, and every time drought hit, the, the, the cattle ranch would struggle and they would verge on the edge of bankruptcy to start looking at it in a different way. And they ended up um, turning it into a rhino sanctuary at a time when rhinos were um, in northern Kenya, especially, you know, being hunted down to the very, very last animal. And uh, with Kinyan Dewey, they he got permission from what would become the Kenya Once Wildlife Service, the government, and uh, would go out and uh, uh, round up and catch these individual animals that on their own might survive if they were lucky a few more years hiding from the poachers, but would never contribute to a sustainable population because they were isolated and separate in ones or maybe even just twos, and would go and capture them and bring them back to Lewa and um, 
provide what in the end has become the success story of Lewa. And, and now, of course, the rhinos on Lewa, you know, generations later, are being sent back out to areas they were exterminated from. So, you know, a real success story there. And, and that was there where the roots of what this community conservation movement would become. That's where the roots lie in this essentially this a friendship between two, two teenage boys and obviously two men now. I really loved the story. You see, from the dramatic account of the destruction in the 80s and 90s, the killing and the slaughter that was coming, these two men standing against all the odds, trying to go and, and get the, the, the last rhino. And then from there, the first community, the Namuyak, and all the work that has been done. I just want to, to ask you, because you have been there more than a year, walking the, the travel and then seeing and being with these exceptional people. Can you give us some stories, something that has impacted you? Northern Kenya is, is simply one of the most spectacular places I've ever seen and so geographically diverse from these beautiful high mountains to arid desert bush areas and then these mountains that rear up like Marsabit and uh, up to Namunyak and Wagis, what also is called the Matthews Range, these what they call sky mountains and these huge peaks rise out and they catch the, the mist and the cloud. And um, so although down on the on the lower levels, you, you're walking through cracked red earth, so dry, your foot's going to go through uh, holes where the, the ground crack, and you scramble up for hours and hours and you get to the top and you're suddenly in, in not far off a rainforest. It's so misty and cool. And it's where all the elephants go in the, in the dry season to hang out and, and a completely different ecosystem with um, unique plants that aren't really found anywhere else. Spending time with the people who live in this land was an extraordinary experience, and I think maybe now's a good time to tell the sort of the story of of why it's called the book. Is I titled the book "Flowers for Elephants" because the book is a story of community conservation movement, but "Flowers for Elephants" comes from when I was out walking in in the Matthews Range with a Samburu guide, and he and the other rangers I was with would stop every time they found um, an elephant skull. And these, you know, these huge skulls, the sort of size of a you know, waist-high white bones, um, and the rest of the bones would have been taken away by hyenas or lost over the years, but the skulls remained. And uh, they would approach it with reverence, and uh, some of them would break off green branches or the branches with these beautiful blossoms on, and they would stick it in the, the eye socket or where the elephant's trunk had been, the hole left by this as a sort of way of um, offering it as a memorial of marking it, just as, as you know, they would do with their family, when the family would be buried under piles of stones and they would stick in fresh green branches as a way of like laying flowers on a grave, I suppose, in Europe. It was such a touching moment. It showed a real connection that I think, uh, you know, speaking as a European, that we, you know, we've lost so much in Europe and, and in the West of this connection that still remains between wild animals and the people who live alongside them. People view themselves as being part of nature in a way that I think you know, the West has lost to its detriment, that people are living with nature and understanding its importance that you know, we're all part of the tangled string. And I think we've seen that with COVID is you know, suddenly we realize that you start damaging an ecosystem in the end you know, we're not separate from that. We are all part of it. And I suppose that was why I chose this as a title, because it was such a beautiful image, so emotional and so moving, to understand how we're all connected to each other. 
um, both as humans, but as species uh, from top to bottom. I loved the story, you know, you tell about the Samburu uh, tales, about the origin of elephants and this moment. You describe wonderfully this moment in the book. And what you just said, I think you, you touched the core of what the NRT mission and vision is. To, to work together with community, empowering community, reconcile, you know, in, in the imaginary. We have the community. We see some narratives saying, you know, the community, they cannot live alone, wildlife, they are agents of destruction. Instead, they have proven in this almost 30 years of work, this connection and work, reconnecting community, wildlife, and conservation in an holistic way. And as well, engaging them and in what they mattered most. Uh, in fact, one, one part of the book is about, you know, getting on board the community and working and the lesson learned on that. Can you explain a bit more? This is the core. Why? Absolutely. I mean, what NRT is doing or what Community Conservancy doing it is incredibly simple. It's creating a community council to manage the land upon which people live there and they're living from and is theirs as a community land. So it's just creating a, some sort of community structure to allow people to put in decisions about their land. And often this is something that people have done for millennia. This is part of their uh, governance structure existing. But in somehow formalizing it, it allows, it gives the communities a structure to you know, better protect their land, to face, and I think this is the key thing, that the challenges of the modern age as climate change becomes more dramatic and also uh, against security threats. So um, it's about bringing people together to manage their own resources. And so, as I said, on one hand, incredibly simple, but on the other hand, that involves enormous complexities. But in, in areas where there is relatively little uh, central governance from um, either counties or governance in Nairobi, these community conservancies, by putting in place these structures, can provide in a much better way, right on the ground, how to make decisions for the community's best interests and um, as we, as I was discussing before, in the, about the flowers for elephants, you know, it, it, this is about a holistic approach for all the environment. So that involves um, protecting the land, making sure that trees are not being cut down or uh, you know wastefully cut down, and uh, that rangelands are being managed, the grass areas for grazing for cattle, that the wildlife upon which everything depends as well, it's all part of one system, are all living in some sort of coexistence. So, so that's what the conservancies are trying to do. And given the history of uh, colonial exploitation, the sense of outsiders coming in and saying, we want to manage your land is obviously going to be a controversial and difficult thing, which is why it's so important that these are community rooted. And that's why I, as a, I was just an independent observer. I'm nothing to do with NRT. I wasn't paid by them. I, you know, I was going in as a journalist um, as a cynical journalist, to see if this thing was actually really working, as as people were saying, and I was really happily surprised to see, you know, that there was positive change being made through these communities coming together, and in areas where 10, 20 years before the cattle raids and uh, were of a level where insecurity was so bad. I mean, people would say they, you know, one old man said that he didn't sleep with his shoes on because he was so frightened that at any time there could be a cattle raid and he would have to get up and run. That was 20 years ago. And by putting in place these structures, it's created security, it's helped create better governance, that's brought in donor money, that's helped create different employment opportunities and uh, economic benefits. And so as a holistic approach, it's really started to change the dynamics of these 
communities for the better. I want to go a bit deeper on that because one of the stories that you tell in the book is something that it's a sign of the work that this community movement and the work and entrusting the community to be their leader has done. And especially also healing the long story of fighting and catastrophe and the divide between community. And I'm talking about the history of Josephine. Can you tell me a bit more about her and this wonderful leadership example? Yeah, she's an extraordinary lady, Josephine Akuru, from a conservancy called Nakuprat Gotu, which is a little bit northeast of Isiolo. Uh, it's a very dry, arid area, but it's uh, full of oryx. It's a, it's a really beautiful, um, austere land. And back in the 90s, back in the early 2000s, the area was absolutely hammered by poachers coming in to wipe out, um, well, they'd, they'd already killed all the rhinos that happened to be there, and, and then they were targeting um, elephants. And Josephine, in a very uh, sort of male-dominated society, is an extraordinary lady who was able to sort of stand up and make a change. And she went around trying to persuade, because she knew who the local guides were, who were guiding in poachers and, and, and who were killing the elephants, and persuade them face-to-face to say, look, you know, what we're doing is damaging our community and we should be protecting the wildlife. And uh, she had this phrase, she said, you know, when, when, they were, when the Takana people who she comes from and would, mo- would move to an area, they would see the sign that there was wildlife around, whether that was antelopes or elephants or giraffe, as being a good sign that the land was blessed, that this was a place that was going to be safe also for their cattle because it meant there was water and there was grazing. And she was seeing this wholesale slaughter of uh, elephants and then moving on to other animals as well as something that was damaging the the community's most precious resource, which was their land and environment itself. And so she went up to these poachers and tried to persuade them. And in the end, um, you know, she was en- ended up being held up at, by gunpoint by the poachers and, uh, you know, threatened to be killed. But she still continued and they let her go in the end. And slowly by slowly, she won people over, people who clearly were aware that what they were doing was damaging to the environment, but they didn't know almost how to break out of that cycle of violence, how to get out of the problem that that they got themselves involved in. And uh, she ended up becoming one of the the first chairmen of her her conservancy. And she now works as a, a peace ambassador for NRT for all the different communities. She will go between them to bring rival groups together and, uh, you know, try to get people to sit down, to talk over their problems, to ask what's the issue, rather than fighting it out with guns. You know, so why don't we sit down, we, we, you know, we kill a few goats and sit under a tree and talk about it and see what can be resolved. So yeah, her, her story is very emotional, very moving, and, and she's a really uh, great individual to have met. And I suppose her story is also important because it really reflects that story of what NRT is doing is not about outsiders coming in to tell Samburu or or the Pakot or the uh, Turkana or the Somali what to do. This is very much individuals from those communities themselves who are taking a stand to try to lead their, their own community to a better way. Um, and I was really privileged as an outsider, as a journalist, to come and to be able to watch that and, and just to report on it for a little bit uh, to hear their stories. And this is exactly why I really loved the book, because you tell the story of the CEO now of NRT, you know, Tom, who is just a Maasai, herding his his cattle and sheep, but with an MBA and leading such a big organization. So you can see the root and the work in in the community, but also his work and the prize that has won all over. So 
it's something that yield the community and given tangible benefits. And this is also what you tell in the book that some of the lessons learned during the, the journey of NRT, when in area where the community was not involved properly, that is where it was not coming on board, but where the community is there and the work is togetherness, then we see and then sprouted and the results are amazing. I want just to point out, maybe you can tell the last story, which really also touched me, the first community-owned rhino sanctuary, something that really, it's amazing and the first, like I think in the whole of Africa. Uh, yeah, I think so. Certainly in East Africa. It's called Sarah, uh, again, north of Isiolo, near a little town called Sarah Lippi. Um, and it's this wild, beautiful area um, of dry, arid um, thornlands. And it's an area that, for the cattle herders, they would have gone into only once or twice a year, really, because it, there was limited amount of water. And it was through um, NRT and through the Community Conservancy themselves, they identified this area that, that they could be fenced off. And it's one of the few areas that is actually fenced off within our NRT, but it's fenced off because of the, the security that's needed to protect the rhinos there. But they fenced off uh, the reserve and started to return rhinos, some of which came from Lewa, which was where the rhinos had been almost collected from, not these ones themselves, but their mothers or their grandparents, I guess, back in the 80s. And there was now enough rhinos on Lewa to be able to return them to some of the areas they've been wiped out by poachers in. And suddenly you had rhinos returning to an area where, um, you know, some of the community in Sarah said they, you know, rhino were almost becoming stories of legends, of myths. That, you know, this, that their grandparents would talk about going through the bush and hearing or seeing the footprints of a rhino. And suddenly now they were being returned and they're flourishing. You know, it's a great country for rhino. And they've put in some really innovative projects such as um, creating these things called sand dams. So uh, building like concrete walls across a gully, across a narrow stream. When the storms come, it fills up with sand um, and that holds the water for a much longer time than a, an open air reservoir, if you want. And, and for that, that's perfect. The rhinos can, can dig down and drink, or get the water from the sand like that. Uh, and so, yeah, an incredible place to see. And, and when you go there, you can track them on foot, which is, again, a, a unique experience. And the money that they're raising through um, the visitors that go and track them and, and watch them goes back towards the community and is paying for the salaries for the staff and um, for other community projects that the Conservancy chooses. Thank you for those wonderful stories. We have seen, and through the book, you demonstrate the impact through also the social work, uh, the restoration of rangeland, which has enabled also cattle to flourish, the work also for empowerment of women. And I urge also people to go and read the reports. Also, when peace uh, comes, also donors comes, they work on wells, on water and sanitation, which really has brought on board the community and embraced the movement. Of course, even in uh, one of the chapters of the book, you discuss about the critics, you know, success, you cannot be liked by everybody. And then, of course, it's also good as critically going through, which are the reservation from some of the people. Can you discuss about the critics and maybe the response that you got also from the ground? of this model in, in terms of the critics of nrt you know that's one of the key reasons why i um wanted to go and investigate that's what a journalist does you know you hear bad stories you hear positive stories and it's your job to go and try and 
see for yourself and, and report back. And, you know, a lot of what the critics were saying, I found out to be what, you know, the critics were saying should be done. That's so there should be more community involvement. There should be um, more involvement of the community on the ground was exactly what NRT was doing. And a lot of what the crit some critics were saying, especially on social media, saying that the land is being fenced off, the land is being taken for mining, the land is being taken for big game hunting, was simply just not true. I didn't find any evidence of this. And, and this is not a small trip. You know, I spent the best part of a year and a half, uh, almost two years actually, going in and around different communities. I spent time both uh, traveling on the back of rangers trucks going on long patrols sort of two weeks at a time and sleeping and camping and living alongside them and also my own reporting going off on my own in my own vehicle and uh, spending time camping and, and talking to the people on the ground and you know of course there are problems you know the areas covered by the community conservancies is roughly the size of switzerland um, involving multiple ethnic groups and in an area where there's real security challenges, um, you know, still many uh, Kalashnikovs, AK-47s, still uh, battles over cattle raids and land and grazing. So this is no sort of perfect place. Um, one of the things the critics said is that, you know, pastoralists should just be left alone to do what they've always done. And I completely agree. My argument would be that's what NRT is supporting them to do, is to face the modern challenges today to allow them to continue their traditional way of life while coping with the challenges, whether that's climate change or, or governance structures or automatic weapons sweeping in from South Sudan or Somalia or Ethiopia. And I think, you know, as a journalist, I saw what these areas were like before NRT impacted. So I was in Masabit, I was in Mayali, right on the border of Ethiopia, uh, reporting on, on cattle raids. And I remember one time being in Mayali, which I, I talk about in the book, you know, I was with the Kenyan army and I thought the cattle raids were over and I was going in to report about the conflict that, had, that was over. And in fact, people started fighting. I was caught up in the middle of you know, a heavy gun battle with the army sweeping in between, uh, firing into the dirt between the two sides to keep them apart. And I was like, this is, you know, this is not the society in general was facing such challenges from the threats of the modern age. And you know, it's, there does need to be some sort of peace building effort and governance structures put in place. Because the old ways, the things that worked 100 years ago, they need a, an upgrade for the modern age, just as everywhere in the world does. This is not something unique to northern Kenya at all. It's a lesson for all of us that you know things are no longer the same as they were 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago. Uh, and finding ways to, to tackle that is what's really important. So in terms of the critics, you know, absolutely, it's important they have their say. And I interviewed people who were very critical and very negative of NRT. But a lot of what I found uh, simply wasn't borne out by the facts on the ground. And overall, I found a really positive approach uh, that was making yeah, real change to communities in northern Kenya that had been marginalized for, for decades, if not longer. So for me, it was a really, you know, I felt strong enough that I wanted to write a book and put my name to it. And as a journalist, you know, your name is your sort of reputation, as it were. So, you know, if I didn't feel strongly about this, I wouldn't have sat down to write a book. And, and again, I just wanted to repeat, you know, I wasn't paid anything by NRT. I'm not connected to them beyond the fact that I spent, you know, a couple of years living amongst the communities and felt that this was important. Being told, um, especially on social media, didn't reflect what I was seeing on the ground. I think this is something important because as a journalist, 
you are working for the truth and trying to see with your eyes. And I think two years experience, two years gathering and working. And I really like also what you wrote in the book. Some of the critics are just more involvement in the community. There are also some of the lessons learned within the movement. And I can see this, it's part of the work because pastoralists, they have been there and they understand the land and the community and the results that we can see, they are really transforming lives. So I think it's really important. And also the critic, they can act like an incentive or even do more and work more, you know, for the community in, in Kenya and in especially in the North. Towards the end of the book, uh, you discuss about, you know, the way forward uh, of the conservative movement, something that uh, started with these two men uh, that we meet at the beginning of the book, uh, that they were going around uh, seeing animals, and then they, they witnessed the killing and the slaughter, and then they started this movement. Now they even uh, they are not even active part of NRT because you know the new generation has taken part. Now you see the expansion and the way you know also of this movement in other area of Kenya, which they have similar challenges. Can you tell us a bit more about the way forward this conservative movement and how you you can see since you have witnessed how this can help? fostering a new model of conservation. I hope that it continues and whether it continues um, to inspire people as directly as NRT, you know, whether that that uh, organization itself, you know, expands and continues or just that concept itself. And I know, I think in Northern Uganda now, NRT has been supporting in Kidepo, Ugandans to do something, a very similar idea. So, you know, it really is expanding internationally and is applicable to many different to areas. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, in the decades to come, you know, the world is facing big environmental challenges. And I think the lesson that I saw in NRT is that when we read the newspapers by journalists, you know, so often what we see is that environmental change is causing conflict and is driving people apart. And what I saw in northern Kenya was that that had happened for many decades. Environmental change was creating conflict between different people but the organization through the community conservancies was bringing people together and that the common challenges they faced old rivals who might have hated each other and raided their cattle but the old rivals were suddenly saying you know enough we have to face this challenge together otherwise it's a zero-sum game we will both defeat each other and, and neither will benefit so in a strange way, those environmental challenges were bringing people together. And, and that's a real message that I think, you know, we all can learn from wherever we are and that I think will become increasingly applicable in, in the decades to come, that we need to stand together and face this common threat. Um, and we'll all do better because we're together um, rather than fighting for the scraps, um, you know, and creating more conflict. In that, in that way, everyone loses. So it, I think that's the important thing. And this is a wonderful message that it's really coming out also from the book. We are at the end of our wonderful episode. I cannot recommend more just to read the book, go and see all the wonderful story. We have just touched a couple uh, here in the podcast, but I learned so much uh, and it was a real also learning journey for me. I want to, to ask, even as you conclude in the book, a final message, something that you want to share. Uh, with our audience? I think it would be just a message of hope. I think so often when you read about environmental challenges, when you re re read about threats against wildlife, against poaching, against 
um, biodiversity collapse, it's really easy to be cynical and say, well, what's the point? You know, if we're all going to be ending up in a fireball, if the world's going to burn, you know, why do we bother to do anything? You know, let's just enjoy life now and, and you know, fly as many times as we want and, you know, live an environmentally destructive lifestyle. And I think it's really important to read a story where people have faced incredible challenges and have started to overcome them northern kenya is not out of the woods by any uh, length but the changes that they've made in the last few decades have really seen a remarkable change and um, you know wildlife coming back to areas that was completely exterminated from um, and communities were effectively at war uh, are now living in relative harmony with their neighbors so the message is you know things can change and uh, you know we should make every effort we can because if the people in northern Kenya had given up in the 1980s, then it really would be probably not far off a war zone similar to South Sudan or Somalia. Um, you know, it's neighboring countries where things are so similar, and yet northern Kenya has managed in many ways to turn it around. And thank you so much, Peter, for this wonderful episode. And then I can also say, add that you put in the, in the book a, a wonderful a tip for people like visit the big north travel so we'll put the link there and then please also be part of this conservation movement and support the community you have said that the roads are long and dusty but the adventure awaits so thank you so much peter and for the wonderful book and this wonderful story thank you thank you so much that's great thank you good thanks to you all are you satisfied after this wonderful episode let's continue together our sustainability journey.